1: just before you listen to today's episode this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear you can help support history hack which is run entirely by volunteers using our patreon account there are links on all of our episodes or if a subscription is not your thing you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink so if you hear an episode you like it and you want to chip in just once then you can do that too thank you Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Zach's with me today. Zach, who did you go and find and why? Because, I mean, I'd, I've already seen the questions, obviously. I love this topic. Tell, tell us who's here.
2: So we have Jane Hayter Haynes with us and we've done a fair bit of Charlie 2, courtesy of the original Charlie on History Hack, Charlie White.
1: She is slightly obsessed, isn't she?
2: just a little bit I think it's just sort of the idea of him sort of standing there and looking a little bit rugged and sort of smoky and and all of that but in the process of focusing a fair bit on Charlie two, and we'll do more on Charlie two because you know he's he's a fun guy to talk about we haven't talked so much about Charlie one so Jane is going to talk us through it because she's a historian author in the past she's written about Arthur O'Connor United Irishman but her latest book is entitled the fall of Charles the first Jane welcome to history hack how are you
1: Yes,
3: I'm fine. Thank you.
1: No, this should be really good because we don't like we just he he's like the the prologue every time we do the Stuarts, isn't he? Because then he Charlie just goes waffling on about Barbara and Charles II mm. uh, and we don't ever cover him. No, and also the, the story
3: of Charles I is the main action. I mean, that sets the scene for the whole century.
1: Oh, controversial. I, I wish Charlie was here for this because she would absolutely love it as well because uh, she's all about the Stuarts. Um Zach, take us away.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I'm going to start with sort of that Ladybird book interpretation. And I literally mean like the Ladybird books. That was the first time I read about Charles I, and they kind of painted him as more than a bit incompetent, an incapable king, an evil guy. And that perception has kind of stuck for some people. Why do you think that is? And to what extent is that a fair assessment of him? Was he a bit incapable? And what was his character actually like?
3: Well, he was not supposed to be king. He had an older brother who was who had all the attributes that you need to be a king. And he was small and had weak legs and a speech impediment, some kind of stammer. So he was not ideal material to be a king. Um, I think his reputation has changed a lot over the centuries, and it slightly depends on current politics. But I grew up, like you, with a picture of him as... Incompetent and inclined to be tyrannical. But as I researched the topic, it turned out rather more complex than that. Uh, He was certainly quite scholarly and clever, but he was very nervous that people were not going to take him seriously, that he was not going to be respected, largely because he was small and he, he found it very difficult to become a good rider and to do sword play and to do all those athletic things that are early modern king is supposed to excel at. So he was always standing on his dignity and that was one of his problems. He tended to become very obstinate. He thought that once he became king, it was his job to make a decision, give it out an instruction and it would be obeyed. But he didn't have the arts of persuasion and negotiation or even try to charm people into going along with his ideas. And that ran him into a lot of trouble
1: He sounds to me like Nicholas II. He sounds like the last Tsar. He sounds like he's a well meaning guy. He's quite nice. He's not very intimidating, but he goes off on this whole sort of uh, I'm going to be a brutal uh, autocrat and you will do as you're told. Uh, But then he hates offending people um, and people not liking him. So he can't really carry it through.
3: Yeah, uh, Charles, I mean, Charles started his reign with really difficult problems because. his father, James I, had this favourite, the Duke of Buckingham, who, I mean, James had this very ambiguous relationship with him, but he was clearly in love with Buckingham, and Buckingham had taken over a large part of affairs of state. He had titles, he had honours, he was very wealthy, but he was actually setting government policy, and um, he had actually really made the choice of Charles I's bride, who was a French princess and a Catholic, and they were involved in a European war, so when Charles came to the throne, he was short of money. He'd got this very unpopular man right at his elbow. He'd got to fund armies, which he was already giving guarantees for. And he'd been, as it were, engaged and married to a young French princess who came as a Catholic with a Catholic entourage. So the scene was set for trouble before he even started.
2: And there's also a thing about his father, isn't there? Because there are there's a whole kind of school of thought that kind of positions... James as you know this kind of drooling man who's very sort of pugnacious and a bit difficult and he tries to be intellectual and and some say look actually he's trying to do the right thing Uh, but others are turning around and sort of um, sort of suggest that he's he's just a really awkward figure so is there a kind of a a knock-on from that do people sort of look at Charles as an extension of James?
3: Well, I think James had left his son really big problems because he'd never been able to manage the English parliaments. He came down to England in his late 30s and he thought that moving to England as heir to Queen Elizabeth would bring him a much easier way of life, enormous wealth and a much less contested political space. But he discovered that it was contested. It was just done in a more manly fashion. You know, the English parliaments were really assertive. And um, he had to kind of moderate his ideas about his own powers and prerogatives, but he basically fought with parliament. And as a result, he couldn't get the tax revenues he needed and funding the state was just a really constant problem. And um, he'd really advised his son not to call another parliament. In fact, James had been negotiating with the King of Spain for a marriage with the King of Spain's daughter, the Infanta, hoping that it would bring a big enough dowry that he wouldn't have to call any more parliaments for a while. So when Charles came to the throne, the antagonism was already there. And the first parliament that he called didn't award him the tonnage and poundage, which was customary. It was usual for parliament. It was a kind of customs revenue, and normally they would give it for the whole reign, but they didn't. So Charles was short of money from the beginning, and there was this confrontational relationship with parliament. But unfortunately, because he didn't try to woo Parliament or persuade Parliament, even when he developed really quite good, well-thought-through modernising policies, they fell foul of this inability to persuade or charm or make a party.
2: Well, if Charlie was <coughs> here, she would just turn around and say, like father, like son, because this uh, everything that Charles II does is about this constant fight for money from... Parliament. And if, by that point, of course, Parliament is kind of wise to where things went wrong before, and it's really kind of tightened on the purse strings even more. Um, but I want to talk about Henrietta Maria, Charles's wife, for a second. How does that relationship go? Because Henrietta Maria always strikes me as quite a kind of impressive woman. She has to go off to France, um, well, the continent, to just sell the crown jewels um, or to pawn them initially. Um, so what's what's that relationship like and, and what does she bring to this dynamic of Charles's life?
3: <laughs> I'm very intrigued by these concepts that you've got of James, Charles and Henrietta Maria. And you're absolutely right. She was a very feisty. She was very, very small. I mean, Charles himself was very small, even for an early modern man. And she only came up to his shoulder. So she was a tiny little thing. But she was the youngest daughter of Henri Catch of France, who was a very charismatic and assertive man. And um, she came to England age 15, not really able to speak any English. And all she really knew about her new role was that she was the champions of the Catholics. She knew that there was an agreement in her marriage settlement that there would be moderate policy towards the English Catholics because there were laws against them, but it depended a great deal, you know, to what extent they were applied, usually depending on how insecure the state felt. So she she was very unshy about her religion. She practiced it very openly. She went down and acknowledged the Catholic martyrs who the English state saw as rebels who had been put to death. And um, But she couldn't get close to the king because Buckingham completely dominated the king. But then Buckingham, without any warning at all, was assassinated one morning, coming down to breakfast in Portsmouth, some man sprang on him and using a cheap knife, stabbed him and he bled to death. And Henrietta Maria was a very warm hearted woman. She fled to the King's side, she comforted him. She went and comforted Buckingham's widow and the relationship absolutely blossomed and they fell in love and the first baby was born a year later. And then there were a string of royal children. So that was a genuine love affair. They were very close. They had a lot of tastes in common and they had a very happy family. And actually they were rather devoted parents. But the problem with Henrietta Maria was that she didn't understand the politics of England at all. And she never really quite grasped them. And she never understood the problems with the Protestant religion and the various sects in England. So yes, she was extremely brave and she certainly raised money and brought arms back to her husband. But she was very, she was a goad, really, in the English political system.
2: She's used as a scapegoat quite a lot, isn't she, by the by the parliamentarians when it comes to propaganda?
3: Well, she's very easy target because the the English were just so terrified that the Reformation was going to be reversed, that Catholicism was just going to insidiously grow back into the state, that Ireland and Irish Catholics might prove to be a sort of springboard from which foreign Catholic armies could come into England. So to have a Catholic queen, you know, right at the centre of London, clearly practising this religion, and then other people in the capital come because there are services being held there. So it seems to be a growing influence. And they are absolutely terrified of it. I mean, they look like they're just really antagonistic to it but it's actually a totally seminal fear that Catholicism is going to reassert itself. So yeah, Henrietta Maria is the figurehead for that.
1: I think as well, what astounds me is the contrast between her and Charles II's wife later on as well. I mean, it's like it's the the flip side of the coin, isn't it? On what can go wrong and what can go right on one of these marriage matches. But let's talk about what happens to Charles I. Uh, so you've mentioned already he inherits a whole pile of problems from his father. How does he begin to try and deal with them? And how do we end up um, with the wars of the three kingdoms as a result?
3: biggest problem was that he couldn't raise enough money and parliament wouldn't give it to him and every time he called parliament they wanted redress of their grievances before that they would award any supplies so you know you sort out what's happening with religion before we give you any money but he had already promised money for the war in Europe and I mean a large part of the war in Europe centered around his own sister Elizabeth who married Frederick of the Palatinate and they'd become the King and Queen of Bohemia as great Protestant champions and then being chased out of there by the Empire, by the Imperial Habsburg. So the English public wanted Charles to support the war effort in Europe, but Parliament wouldn't award him the funds he needed to do it. And they also really disliked the Duke of Buckingham and tried to impeach him. And Charles couldn't talk them round so when he ran into problems with parliament he would just close it down the king had the right to call and dissolve parliament and when they wouldn't give him what he wanted he dissolved them so he held three parliaments with right out really any success and the last was so contentious that he didn't call another he just ruled without parliament for 11 years
1: what do they think of him as a result what do they say about him
3: Well, the political elite are back down in their constituencies, Mm. nurturing their grudges and becoming more and more incensed. But because he didn't meet them, he may not have been aware just how much antagonism there was. But the main problem was that he was raising money by forms of taxation for which they hadn't given any grant. And he was arguing that he had the right to do that and he would take his arguments into court. And in fact, won the argument in court. But... I mean, some historians will say that he actually ran quite an effective government during the personal rule that despite the fact there was no parliamentary representation, he did you know, manage his three kingdoms relatively efficiently. But the problem was that at some point he had to call another parliament. And when it arrived, the grievances exploded all over him. And uh, I mean, the, the whole thing was triggered by his meddling, in Scottish religious practice and it was a classic case of Charles not seeing that he was stirring a hornet's nest. He went up to Scotland because he was a royal steward, he'd got to be crowned in Scotland, I mean obviously, and 1633 he went up to Scotland for his coronation and saw what the churches in Scotland were like and what the kind of service they held were like. He was actually horrified, there was a lot of extempore preaching and there was no proper liturgy and the churches had no decoration. It was everything that he disliked. He had been altering church policy in England all through the personal rule. So he decided that he would instigate a new prayer book and force the Scots to use it. And he did that and riots broke out. And from then on, Charles was constantly in conflict. I mean, that was actually the beginning of all the warfare that broke out in his reign.
2: Does he make much effort to tour the country and sort of get a sense of the local reaction? Or is this very much a case of he's got to be in London with the the apparatus such as it is during that period of government? And so therefore, he kind of feels that he can't tour. Is he a bit too shy to therefore go on tour? What's it like for him in terms of trying to connect with the people and get a sense of the reaction? Or does he not even think about popular reaction? Is it just I'm the king, you're going to do it?
3: Uh, He lurks slowly. So he did learn that he had got to go out and be seen and charm. He was quite shy. And, you know, kings quite, quite often used to have meals in big rooms in their palaces in public and people could come in and watch them dining. He hated all of that. But he he had royal houses in, in the sort of um, home counties. And so he would go out to Royston and... New market where there were country houses, and so he'd go hunting. And he would be seen when he did that. But he wasn't like Elizabeth the First, who would go on big um, ornamental um, tours so that she could see and be seen. He was much too shy. And when he started to run into trouble, and I think the trouble was actually quite a big shock for him, uh, it, his minister started to say, "Look, you know, you're going to have to talk people round, and you need to see people, and they need to see you." And you just need to get out and about. And he started to do that. But I think one of Charles's problems was that he was very slow to learn those sort of public displays and persuasive techniques. So
2: 1642, things really start to fall apart. Talk us through why this ends up descending into civil war and the extent to which Charles is or is not responsible for that.
3: Um, We'll just nip back a little bit to 1638, he runs into trouble with the Scots. 1639 and 40, there are two bouts of warfare with the Scots on the border for which he's got to raise an army for which he's got no money. So in 1640, he called an English parliament, and the first one was exceptionally contentious, mainly because of the religious issues, and he closed it down. But he could not fight the Scots without the support of his English parliament and, and some cash. So in November, he called another parliament, which turned out to be the long parliament, which was <laughs> stretched way forward into the next two reigns. And um, all the grievances of those 11 years broke upon him. And the thing was that Charles had a very effective minister in Dublin, Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Strafford and he had brought Stratford over to help him fight the war against the Scots. But for Parliament, they saw Strafford as one of the chief evil ministers of the King. And they were very well aware that he had a fully functional army in Ireland that was paid up and ready to go. And actually, Strafford was trying to offer that army to be used in the war against the Scots, but Parliament wanted to argue that it might've been used to put down any kind of dissension in England. So what with the army in Ireland, um, warfare, which had failed on the Scottish border, Northern England, a absolutely massive can of worms of religious grievances, extra parliamentary taxation, the role of the queen and the Catholics. He was just running into a, a wall of problems. Um, there was a moment when concessions were offered and probably some sort of accommodation could have been made, because the leaders in the Commons at that time, I mean John Pym, was open to concessions, his close associate in the Lords, Bedford, was also open to concessions, being brought into the Privy Council advising the King, but there was just a radical element in the Commons that wanted to go further, there was a lot of very strong public opinion in London, which the and there were starting to be mobs, you know, surrounding Whitehall, surrounding the palace, surrounding Westminster. And the king was scared. But I think really the impeachment and execution of Strafford was quite a key moment because after that, the rest of Charles Ministers felt their lives were in danger. And the king began to feel that he and his queen and his children were in danger. So both as a rather nervous monarch who wasn't sure he could assert himself, And as father of a family, you know, to whom it's very close, but he's the patriarch of the family, he's not fulfilling his role. He can't assert himself. He can't protect them. And the room for concession and manoeuvre started to close.
1: Do we know how he felt? I mean, you said that he was scared, but did he, As he left his own words, sort of his own reaction to suddenly realising that he's got it so wrong?
3: Um. I'm trying to think of an actual source for that year where you could hear the king's words. Later on, mm. much later in the whole process, when the queen is abroad and the and the king is a captive, there are letters between Charles and Henrietta Maria, and they're extremely revealing. But but um, there are there is correspondence between him and his ministers. He didn't speak in public that much because of the stammer. You know uh when you get into the Cromwellian period there's this enormous amount of material because Cromwell spoke in public and uh, was recorded <laughs> but Charles I far less so you have to surmise quite a lot of it from his reactions um from the letters that he wrote he wrote to Strafford when Stratford was a prisoner in the tower guarantee guaranteeing his life but um actually because the Commons were so determined that Stratford should be executed. Despite the fact that they were unable to bring a successful case against him, they passed a bill of attainder, which was basically a statute which led to his execution, but the King was forced into signing the death warrant because there were mobs. And I think we just have to assume that he was scared, he'd lost control of the situation. And we know that he felt Bitterly about that for the rest of his life because he mentions it again and again that he'd allowed Strafford to go to his death and he's not going to sacrifice any more of his ministers and colleagues. So
1: then we have war. So initially it goes quite well for him, doesn't it? What happens and why is
3: Edgehill key? It goes quite well for him, although he, from the beginning, he had trouble raising infantry. I mean. It's very difficult to say who's supporting who, because you think that the sort of country gentry are supporting the king and the urban merchants are supporting parliament, but actually it doesn't break down quite like that. It depends a lot on people's personal feelings and their religion plays an enormous part. But the king did have the support of a lot of the rural gentry who could raise cavalry because they could bring out the people on their estates, they could call their tenants forward, and all those people have got workhorses and war horses and hunting horses you know they've so and they've been trained for that kind of warfare so he had very strong cavalry but he was weaker in infantry but one of the king's problems was that he didn't have funding i mean both sides could tax the areas that they controlled But parliament was in london and controlled london and had the support of the city of london with its merchant wealth and that really played an enormous role right the way through so the king was successful at Edgehill up near Banbury. A lot of the fighting was in that sort of central area just northwest of London between sort of London and the West Midlands and um, at that point he thought he could get back into London because he'd fled from London and he felt that if he could get back into London you know the people would rally to his side he'd be able to reinstate himself in all the institutions and that his cause would be greatly forwarded. But in fact, the, the armed bands and the militias put up a stand at Brentford and he couldn't get back into London. And it was getting quite late in the year because they normally fought through the summer months and went back into some sort of winter quarters. Um, and after that, Parliament realised that they were going to have to negotiate. I mean, there was a sort of question mark about the war. You know, how is winning the war going to going to really win the peace if the king wins the war he's going to be reinstated but if parliament wins the war what what's going to happen so all the way through this process there are negotiations the the sort of basic concept is if you win the war as in an international war then you dictate the terms of the peace Mm. but if you win the war and your parliament and your antagonist is head of state and he becomes head of state once more, in what sense are you going to dictate terms? So they were sure that they could, but the first of these sort of negotiations started after Edgehill and then they start to realize they're really up against it. The king is not willing to negotiate, not when it's any of the real powers of the crown or not when it involves his colleagues and ministers, He turns out to be a very stubborn character. Maybe he didn't have the negotiating skills, but you only find out as you go through this process just exactly where the king is going to make, as it were, his political stand.
1: Do we know throughout the process anywhere what he thought of the people that took up arms against him?
3: Um, As far as I can make out, he saw them as rebels. Mm. He felt that he had been given his role as king by God and by inheritance. The powers that came with the crown had come down through a long line of his ancestors. And it was really essential to him that he wasn't, you know, the weak link in the chain that lost control of the monarchy.
0: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids experience the thrill of transformative encounter we'll bring more wonder to your day listen to constant wonder wherever you get your podcasts
3: he and, the, and the prerogative pounds and he saw it's very difficult to say because all the way through people are changing positions. So there are some people with whom he's clearly willing to negotiate and there are others who are much more radical and who he sees as rebels and Charles was always very quick to resort to arms. So if he's getting into trouble and he's up against it and people are really pushing he will very quickly try to raise an army and just put it down by force. And um, he talks of them in those terms. He talks of them in those terms to, to his colleagues and to his queen, but I don't think it's an across-the-board attitude. I think he feels that he can separate out these antagonists mm. and do business with some, but he's probably going to have to really suppress others.
2: So having initially gone-ish well, up until Edge Hill at least, With time, it does go quite badly wrong. What are the reasons behind that?
3: Um, Well, partly Parliament is extremely well-funded, partly because they have very high morale, and partly because as the war goes on, it becomes the army commanders are... The initial idea was that aristocrats lead armies. I mean, that was an old feudal idea. That was kind of what an aristocrat was. An earl had to defend his piece of territory. So even in this early modern period, initially the parliamentarians are being led by earls, the Earl of Essex and the Earl of Manchester. But coming through from behind are officers and men who are just really natural soldiers, really skilled soldiers. And that's how Oliver Cromwell emerged. He was an absolutely natural soldier. And actually, he was quite old when he took up arms. He was in his 40s, I think, when he first started um, raising men in East Anglia. And he is the absolutely classic example of the morale of the parliamentarian army at its core, because he raised men who really believed in the cause. They were completely disciplined. There was no swearing. There was no drinking. They moved as one. They had fighting techniques were you know they were really impregnable once they got going that's how he earned his um, title Ironsides because you couldn't break break through them and they began to form the core of the parliamentarian army and they had a, and then they made an alliance with the mm-hmm. scots and they had a great victory at marston Moor, but it was thrown away because the leaders of the army didn't really M- manchester and essex didn't really want to push the war to its ultimate conclusion. They were starting to worry about what was going to happen when the war ended. And after that, parliament decided they were going to have to reorganize their forces completely, amalgamate them, not have these regional forces, but have a single professional army with professional leaders and hence the creation of the new model army. And um, despite an enormous success in Scotland, in 1644. After that, really, you know, the king began to lose territory. And um, after Naseby, he lost a large part of his army. He lost an enormous part of his arsenal. He lost his personal papers, which were very revealing. And he could... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible
0: to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out.
3: I mean, it seemed like for a moment after the great successes of Montrose and Alistair McCollum MacDonald up in Scotland, that he was going to have a, a really viable army up there, but they got crushed, they split apart and got crushed. He, he got some support from the Irish army under the Duke of Ormond, who got a cessation with the, with the Confederates in Ireland, but none of that was going to win the war for the King. Once he was up against a really fully funded, professional, highly motivated army and the new model army, I mean, it emerged as just an absolutely magnificent modern fighting force. I mean, it became something that even European rulers came to fear.
1: I think, um, first of all, we're not. Oliver Cromwell fans on this podcast and I just I'm laughing at the concept of no drinking and no swearing rules out the entire staff of History Hack from uh, that we'd all have to be royalists I think because there's no way we'd survive in Oliver Cromwell's army Uh, it sounds like a miserable experience at at this point no one I think you've already mentioned I think it's so interesting that they're starting to panic about what happens if they beat the king because obviously no one at this point is thinking yeah well if we win we'll just lop his head off and everything will be fine That's not in their head. So is anyone in this scenario got any kind of concept, including Charles himself, of what the consequences will be for the king if he loses this war?
3: They think they'll be able to dictate terms and they think they're going to have a negotiated settlement and that once they've got it, the king will see reason and he'll agree with whatever the terms are and then he'll stick to them. So there's several problems with that. One is, that all the factions negotiating aren't offering the same terms. They've all got their own agenda. They all get different access to the king. Secondly, it's proving very hard to get him to agree to anything. And thirdly, what makes them think that he's going to stick to the terms if he actually signs a document under duress, You know, and he's reinstated as king, and he's probably got public opinion behind him to quite a large extent, and he gets back all the powers of the crown, what is going to happen to them? And this is starting to be quite a chilling thought. There's a sort of difficulty with the whole thing because if you had said early on that you intended to depose or even execute the king, that is treason and you're going to come to a very nasty end. So, you know, people never really say that about a ruling monarch. They always say there's evil counsellors, the policy is not right, we need to have a persuasion, we need to have a negotiation. They never say you are totally in the wrong, You know, Um, and and even the most radical of his antagonists, it's a very long, torturous process before they really admit to themselves or to each other that they are probably not going to get any kind of settlement that they can live with. But it's very hard to get there. I mean, an anointed king with public opinion behind him no can't. one's
1: expecting him to lose this throne, are they? Least of all him. The solution no. all seem to involve him backing down, but no one's saying we need to get rid of this idiot.
3: No, no. The assumption is that the king is going to be reinstated. And the only question is, what will the terms be? But the terms they're putting forward are terms that he's never going to accept. They want control of the armed forces. I mean, that had been raised right back before the war ever started. I mean, what? anointed king or head of state, even in our times, is not commander-in-chief of the armed forces. Now, people back then didn't know that. They couldn't look forward and think this never happened. They didn't know. They they were scared of what Charles would do with armed forces that he controlled, and they thought that they could bring that under the control of Parliament. Charles is never going to agree to that. They want to... Sorry, I was just going to say
1: that this is, we're still living with this today. This is why we have a Royal Navy and a Royal Air Force, but it's not the Royal British Army. Uh,
3: The Queen is Commander-in-Chief of Mm. all forces. I mean, uh, and then there's a sort of argument about whether, you know, it's totally under the control of the Prime Minister and the Cabinet, or does it have to go back to Parliament all the time? So it's not a fully solved problem. Yeah, it's just kind of evolved as a...
1: Yeah, it's evolved as a precedent, isn't it? That, yes, the Queen, if she wanted, could declare war on Ireland tomorrow and send the army over there, but she wouldn't. I mean, I think that it's the same with assent to um, bills and things. They go up for royal assent, but no royal has ever turned down anything coming up from Parliament now since, I think, Queen Anne. So it just—it's like, it's, it's a shaky precedent, isn't it? But it's not written in law.
2: And you see okay. that the legacy of that for the next 150 200 years with things like the the mutiny act which is the act that the army's based on because it has to be reviewed every single year by parliament because mm. parliament's so concerned about you know size of the army does it need to be any bigger can we limit it and this whole antipathy with the concept of standing armies which is then I mean, there's a whole layer of irony here they don't want the king in charge of the army instead cromwell ends up being in charge of the army and it all ends up going horribly wrong for them you, anyway.
1: You end up with poor George V in a position in 1914. I mean, the First World War saves Asquith because what he's done is negotiate his way into a position where actually the, the people seriously are entertaining that George V might have to ta- like not just assent to any home rule bill coming up and everything. So it's a mess. Um, but we're doing a history hack diversion thing where we go waffling on about stuff that we're not here to talk about, aren't we, Zach? <laughs>
3: let's yeah. go back to the wars. Well, of the I king mean, it's it. an important point, though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. <laughs> who is commander in chief of the armed forces? Mm. You can't really expect a 17th century king to, you know, give away command. Of yeah. Own.
1: I mean, at this point, so and we see it. Uh, it obviously it happens to France in the 1700s. It happens to Russia during the First World War. Uh, but where's sort of the, the front runners for people going, actually, this whole autocracy thing where you're in charge of everything and your rule is just goes without any question. This sucks. And we're not having this anymore. So it's it's new for everyone at this point, isn't it?
3: Oh yeah, I mean the Civil War in the Three Kingdoms is the big seminal moment for the development of modern governments. You know, they they are when they weren't actually fighting over it, they're arguing it out. I mean, it's quite um, you you have to go through an awful lot of constitutional propositions and arrangements if you if you work on this period. But I mean, they actually are really vital arguments about how you create the structure of the government and the state how you balance the powers and they go to it into it in incredible detail and then they fight it out so it was absolutely seminal you know the americans studied this period intimately when they set up their own constitution and i think the same in france and yeah it's a seminal moment for the development of constitutional government
2: there is also a certain irony in the 1790s when French King Louis is executed and the British go, this is disgraceful. We can't have that conveniently forgetting that we did precisely that <laughs> 150 years earlier, give or take a bit. Um, let's let's get back. to. I just, sorry, there's just a period. great
1: anecdote as well from Peter the Great's father, who's on the throne of Russia at the time, who thinks that like this is this is Russia where like it's forbidden to trim your beard and there's still harems and stuff and all this other mad medieval thing think we're utter barbarians because we've locked our king's head off as well like other people are looking on in abject horror at what these savages on this weird little island are up to <laughs>
3: well yeah it i mean it what it was a tragedy mm. you know it was a tragedy that it came to that because the civil war is the nastiest and most destructive form of warfare and it went on for a long time. It, was, it is, yeah. and
1: it's so bloody, isn't it? Zach, you, you're trying to move us on. I, God love you. You're trying to get back on script. Uh, to oh, yeah. back into the fighting, aren't you? Totally our fault, um, always, uh, as to when it actually starts going wrong for the royalists.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, we we're, where are we with the story? We've got as far as Naseby. Um, so yeah. the king is then eventually captured, right? And up until that point, There's been a lot of talk about it's not the king's fault he's being you know he's being controlled by evil advisors he doesn't want to enact these policies and so there's a (laughs) sounds like boris johnson
1: (laughs) he didn't (laughs) plan the work party he
3: didn't
2: (laughs) and so there's a kind of a corner within parliament certainly not you know all of the hardliners but there are people trying to give him the benefit of the doubt and it's always struck me that when they sit him down having captured him and he hasn't got his evil advisors around him anymore the realization hits home, no, he's acting on his own free will. So to what extent does Charles become his own worst enemy at this point and kind of refuse to negotiate and therefore perpetuate the problem?
3: Um, Well, Charles's aim until very, very late on is to be reinstated as king of his three kingdoms. And he's got supporters in all three kingdoms. And he's still got a viable ar- army in, in Ireland. And uh, he's got quite a lot of support in Scotland. So he feels that with all these factions, if he can negotiate, and probably if he can spin out negotiations with each group, at some point, he will play them off against each other. And then, either through public opinion, or probably through force of arms, he'll be reinstated. But in the middle of it, there, there are genuine discussions going on about you know, the powers that he might give away. And in fact, the only agreement, I think I'm right in saying this, the only agreement he made was with the Scottish engagers who did want him to instigate Presbyterianism, but it was only for three years which he was kind of willing to stomach, mainly because they had an army. They had an army that they could put into the field And at that point, he thinks, you know, if I can get hold of my Irish army and there's a Scottish army and I might get a bit of support from overseas, you know, there's always a chance that Henrietta Maria will talk the French into something. And given that there's public opinion, quite a lot of public opinion on my side, I think I could maybe overturn these, um, overturn the sense of being cornered. But the fact was he was cornered. You know, they they did fight a second civil war. The Scots were horribly beaten at Preston and he, he was still a captive. So his negotiating tactic was completely unsuccessful in that sense, but there comes a point where the King is no longer negotiating to be reinstated. He's beginning to realize somewhere in 1648 and then through that winter, probably he's not going to save his own life, that there's quite a high chance now that he's going to lose his life. And then he turns into a different man because he's standing on his own principles, the church, his colleagues, control of the armed forces. Those are sort of three key issues. But if he has to be martyred for it, then he's going to accept that. So yes, you, you you can see him making very bad moves if he's trying to save his life. But if he's trying to stand on principle, then it's a different negotiation, maybe.
1: What does captivity look like for him? Yeah, well, um,
3: (laughs) there's a lot of moving around. He actually gave himself up to the Scottish army. They Mm. took him up to Newcastle and negotiated with him, but also gave him the benefit of a lot of very long sermons, which he found absolutely hideous. They then sold him to Parliament. They couldn't make any sort of agreement with him and they had money owing, so Parliament paid the money and he was handed over to Parliament. And then he had rather a nice time because he went to stay in the country houses that he knew. And actually, people saw him as he moved about and he began to get a sense that he did have quite a bit of support. And when he was at home, he he led a very pleasant life. He went to the neighbouring country houses and played bowls but then the army stole him. They actually turned up, it, call it Joyce turned up with a, a big regiment of soldiers and just removed him and took him to the army at Newmarket, which the king was rather pleased about as he thought, oh, I'll, I'll try negotiating with the, with the army now. And they, they wanted to be kind to the king. They were very, very keen that it should be they who made an agreement with the king. And they brought him down to Hampton court and he was able to meet his ministers and see his children. You know, life was really acceptable to him.
1: I think but, um, there's one portrayal of him at this point, which I thought was just absolutely perfect. And that's Rupert Everett. He gets into <laughs> Killer King where he plays Charles the First at this point. And he's kind of like a cameo in the film because the film's not really about him. Um, It's about um, Fairfax and Cromwell. But I just thought that whole sort of resigned, stoic... Standing by My Principles. I thought Rupert Everett did it wonderfully.
3: I haven't seen that. I'd love to see that.
1: Oh, they couldn't. You know what? And this is like, I ranted on about this film so much that Gray Scott follows me on Twitter. Uh, But they had a nightmare funding this film. Um, It was an absolute nightmare. And I do believe in the end that Gray Scott just put 70 grand of his own money into finishing it. And that, but they filmed it at Hampton Court. It's quite low budget, Um, but it's wonderful. And it's called To Kill a King. And it does focus mostly on Fairfax, which is do Scott's character, and Tim Roth plays Cromwell wonderfully because you just hate him all the way through the film. Uh, <laughs> but Rupert Everett kind of did this cameo as Charles I, and he's amazing. He's so good in it.
3: Yeah, I could imagine that. I've, I've got to see that. I mean, I didn't start out as sympathetic to Charles I at all. Mm. And I, I have written a second volume about pur- Puritan rule under Cromwell, which I' are going to publish for me next year. So I wanted to do the whole period. And I'm a friend of Ireland. I've spent a lot of my life there. So it's quite hard to be sympathetic to Oliver Cromwell if you're a friend of Ireland. You don't have to be on
1: this podcast. We refer to him as Satan's spawn. So you're you're in good company here.
3: (laughs) But, you know, the fact that you're not very friendly to Cromwell doesn't necessarily mean you've got a high opinion of Charles I. Mm. The more I read about him, I mean, I did. I had severe doubts about his ability as a chief executive. Yeah. But as a man, he became more and more sympathetic. I, I did become really quite, yeah, I, I came to like the man a lot. You know, he was very artistic. He had a wonderful picture collection. He was a very good husband and father. And that very strange process where he's no longer trying to get back his power, but he's, in a way, trying to find an honourable way through these last sort of period of his life. It's quite touching, really. And... um
2: He kind of pulled it off. He does attempt to escape, though, doesn't he? And I I have memories of visiting Carisbrook Castle as a kid and them telling us um, about how, because he made two escape attempts, I think, or or kind of started planning them. And one of them was he had had a little look at the window that he was in and he'd stuck his head out of the window of the room he was in. He'd stuck his head out and he was basically confident that having stuck his head out, his shoulders would follow and so he'd be able to just kind of wriggle out this window and then there'd be somebody waiting for him down below and he'd get out the castle and it would all be wonderful and you just kind of and it doesn't work because he hasn't <laughs> in the shoulders are wider and you're not gonna fit mate so what's the the kind of thinking behind the these admittedly bungled escaped attempts is it kind of that sort of divide and, and rule and you know these negotiations aren't working so let's try escaping and going somewhere else and maybe raising another army. Is he constantly kind of looking for that edge and sort of being proactive in trying to you know create a, a, a ton of events that's far more favourable to him?
3: Well I think he was genuinely frightened uh, when he was in, in his last days at Hampton Court and after the army had rebelled against the parliament there's evidence to suggest he was scared of being poisoned. And, but when he did escape, he didn't really know where to go. You know, he ended up at Carisbrook kind of by mistake. He thought that some arrangement had been made and it hadn't. And they went down to Carisbrook and Colonel Robert Hammond was absolutely horrified because he was employed by the army. I mean, I'm sorry, by the parliament, but he was a member of the army. And the last thing he wanted on his hands was the king. You know, he was trying to avoid trouble. He thought that being the commander of Carisbrook Castle was quite a nice sort of backwater where he could see the whole thing. And suddenly he's got the king on his hands. And, um, yeah, I mean, the king, when when he tries to escape, he doesn't know where to go. Because there were times where it looked like he was going to make for the coast and try to escape to the continent and maybe join Henrietta Marie in France. But that was going to cause a whole load of new problems. And if he left the country, what's the chance of him ever getting back into power? really low you know if he runs away he's going to have to mount an army and and invade and so how do the French see that are they sitting there going oh god no please don't rock up at our court please basically they are They're, they're willing to give some advice and to send the odd guy over to help with a bit of diplomacy but the last thing they want on their hands is the exiled English royal family
1: I mean, it cost a cost of fortune for a start. And secondly, it cost a the fortune. Fortune. it's going to bring
3: down trouble on their heads. What are they going to do with him? What's his official position? It's just no. Yeah. They don't want that
1: denied entry at the border turn around sorry no
3: you haven't got your passport or your certificate
1: yeah you, you clearly haven't been vaccinated uh <laughs> it's gonna be like a whole Novak Djokovic situation isn't it we're just like no we don't want you it's just too too much political nightmare to have you in our country right now uh no offense, visa has no. been
2: declined
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> immigration
2: <laughs> will not allow you to cross into the state of France um we have to talk about his trial, you know, the, the end point. And it's often felt to me like he doesn't take the whole thing entirely seriously because of that way that he refuses to engage with the court to a large degree. Cause he goes, well, I'm the King, you know, there is this kind of concept of the King's court. It is my court. You cannot try me in my own court because I'm the head of all of this. And so it, to me, it's always felt like he doesn't sort of engage in that legal process. And then at the end, there's this kind of moment where he hasn't really sort of spoken to the court, hasn't addressed them properly. And then they they pass sentence and then he goes to address the court and they're done. They're, they're finished. And they're not going to let him say anything. Yeah, Does he end up kind of shooting himself in the foot in not engaging with that process? Or is it actually sort of a fair company by that point? And by the time he's in the courtroom, the, the writing is on the wall.
3: Well, it's a very fair question and historians argue about it. I mean, there are, historians do think that he could have been acquitted but i have to say i can't see how that could happen what would happen if he'd been acquitted what's going to happen to him then and also all the agonizing in the army i mean henry ireton the, the autumn before spent really a lot of time wrestling with his conscience wrestling with ideas of the constitution and had come to the conclusion that you know this man of blood charles Stuart, had got to be brought to justice and some of his officers were quite open about what they were expecting from this trial. So I can't see how he would be acquitted. But some people will argue that he could have been. I mean, he was just standing on a point of principle. He said the court was illegal and he refused to put in a plea. And because he wouldn't plead guilty or not guilty, they couldn't go through the whole trial process. They couldn't call their witnesses. And then he wasn't allowed to speak but in a way that had another effect because he kept saying look what's happened to me they won't let me speak if this is the kind of justice i get what kind of justice do you think anybody else is going to get and it became a different kind of event um so yeah if he'd been trying to save his own life he, he could have tried mounting a proper defense but the earl of strafford had mounted a really good defense and they'd executed him anyway so i think charles felt that his answers weren't
1: probably very high. It's just holding his hands up at this point and trusting to God, isn't he? It's just like, it's, it's kind of like he's accepted what he thinks will happen, which is that he will lose his life. Um, in which case, why why negotiate? Why, um,
3: why, why back down? Credibility, I mean, if he acknowledges the court, he's giving credibility to his antagonists. Whereas if he just tries to keep his dignity and stand on the, his own beliefs, and goes to his death with dignity, that's the most he's probably going to achieve at this
1: point. Yeah, I think, so I guess as the first monarch this, hap- this has happened to in Europe, in terms of like divine right of kings being questioned and things, um, there is an element, isn't there, of him realising that it it's bigger than just him, and if he ends up being the martyr to this point of principle, then so be it.
3: Yeah, I think he does think that. And he did become Charles the Martyr. In fact, you know, many people still refer to him as Charles the Martyr. And there's a a day in the Christian calendar in the Church of England calendar, for Charles the Martyr. So it did in a way he said to the army officers back in 1647, you cannot be without me. If I don't sustain you, you'll fall into ruin. In a funny kind of a way, you're never quite sure what that quote means, but in a funny kind of a way, killing the king just did not solve their problems. And um, yes, so so I've written a second book about how they attempted to rule after he was dead. And in fact, they found it very difficult to create any kind of reasonable constitution. So would you say that Charles was vindicated? I don't know. It's just Mm -hmm. a tragedy. It certainly
1: can argue that he's proved right. Because they, yeah. there is obviously it only lasts a few years and then his son is back on the throne.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But talk us through what happens to him. Um, I actually, do you know, they did this brilliant thing with Whitehall palace where it was all interactive and digital. And you basically had this block of wood and you walked around the site of the old Whitehall palace. Uh, palace. So you were all behind the MOD and on Whitehall itself and everything. And this thing changed. So at one point, um, it was a sword and you were having a sword fight out the back um, and everything. And then, but the last thing they did with it uh, was they did the execution of Charles I where they uh, told you the story of him climbing out the window and coming onto the scaffold and you were standing under the spot. And actually um, the, the, the interactive, like a block of wood sounds really lame, but the object that you were given to carry around actually ended as being his heart in your hands. So you had it beaten in your hands and then it stopped oh. and it's telling the story. Um, it was quite, it was really good the way they did it. It was a brilliant tour, um, but very, very modern and newfangled and I think it sounds rubbish when I describe it but yeah it, it no, I'd love to go
3: it. in there I mean I've always wondered about the old palace of Whitehall because it was a great rabbit rabbit warren of buildings that mm. I don't think much of that original palace exists now because it, there was a big fire and then it, they kind of built all over it but it's really hard yes, to- you have
1: banqueting hall and then you have a couple of the older buildings along Whitehall the cellars um still, but I you you can't get down them sort of as a member of the yeah, public. I've been
3: into the banqueting hall, but I sort of never really identified where the all those other anyway. Yeah, the 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 death of the king. Well, um he was taken back to St. James's Palace and he was allowed to see his children. and and his um Princess Elizabeth left an account of that meeting. So she and Henry, Duke of Gloucester, went were allowed to see the king, and the king said they'll to the little boy, he's quite young. Henry I think eight or nine maybe that sort of age and um he took him up on his lap and said they'll try and make you king but you must never agree to be king because they'll cut off the head of your brother both your brothers you must never agree to that and the little boy said never 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 I'll never do that and um you know the children were kind of in tears and the and the king is finding it very difficult to kind of compose himself so anyway um then he spent the night with his churchman and was taken down to the banqueting hall. It was a very cold day. He put on extra clothes. He didn't want to shiver because he thought that people would think that he was afraid. And they'd made a very low block so that instead of just kneeling to it, he had to pretty much lie to it. I think they really did want to bring him low. But And um, nobody ever discovered who the executioner was. I mean, the executioner always had a mask over his head. But... People think they know who it was, but they're never really quite sure. And um, they used to have these silk caps that you put your hair up in so yeah. it would be easy for the executioner to get at your neck. And um, he wasn't really able to speak to the crowd, but he was able to speak to Jackson, his archbishop. And um, anyway, finally, he lay down and gave the signal. You put out your hand when you're ready, and they chop, and the executioner... Pulls up the head and goes, "Behold, the head of a traitor!" And the whole crowd just groaned. I think, I think that that's fear, really. I mean, you know, he he personifies the realm. If he's dead, what's going to happen next? Nobody knows yeah. who's in yeah. charge, who's got power, what's going to happen next. With think- that
1: crowd, I I didn't, I never got the sense that that was like the gorpers that turned up to watch Anne Boleyn's head cut off and stuff. I thought they they went because they knew it was a seismic event in history. They knew they were witnessing something quite absurd and quite out of the ordinary and that was going to change their way of life. And I, I think that groan kind of sums that up, doesn't it? Like, yeah. oh, yeah. God.
2: The reaction says, it, oh, you know, this isn't people baying for blood. This this isn't the mob, in inverted commas. This is what the hell? W- what happens now?
3: Um, yeah, I think they were quite frightened. And especially because it was essentially the army who carried this through, it was no longer Parliament. You know, Parliament had been purged, only a tiny minority of the people who passed that sentence and seen it carried out were really full on MPs. It was essentially an army decision and an army activity. And there were soldiers everywhere keeping the crowds back. And I think that really frightened people because whatever about English and whatever about voting rights, you know, they really did believe that they had representative parliaments and they wanted the constitution that they knew king and parliament and it seemed all to be getting dismantled. Uh, Yeah I think it was a very chilling moment.
2: Jane this has been a great one we've had a a lot of fun kind of chatting through all of this Um, I think we've probably given a much more kind of personal sense of Charles and what he was like as a character which is fantastic. So your book The Fall of Charles I is out already it's published by Ambley Folks can pick it up directly from Ambly. Don't go to Amazon, my habitual rant. Don't give the profits to Jeff Bezos. We can turn it into rocket fuel. Go direct to Ambley, or we will put a link in the description to the History Hack bookstore where you can buy it through our channel. And we pledge that Jane will get her cut through the, the usual channels, uh, but you'll also be supporting History Hack in the process and independent booksellers. But Jane, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for all your help and interest. Really enjoyed it.
2: When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank
0: you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip?